The scripture for today is Daniel 3, 1 to 7, 13 to 18. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue, 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plains of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he sent messages to the high officers, officials, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue he had set up. So all these officials came and stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald shouted out, People of all races and nations and language, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, bow to the ground and worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. So at the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race or nation or language, bowed to the ground and worshipped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. When they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the, god, the gold statue I have set up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you'll be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And what then and then what God will be able to rescue you with from my power? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Teresa, for <clears throat> reading the word this morning. And good morning, everyone. Good to be in the house of the Lord together this morning. Sermon this morning is on faith. Did you really believe that we'd be up to nothing against the... Did you really believe? Two to nothing against the ducks? Wow. Uh, some are lamenting these days that we won't have the first pick in the draft. Not too concerned about that, are you? No. And how about those senators over there, too? Anybody cheering for the senators? There's one in the crowd. Two in the crowd. Wow. Three in the crowd. Oh, look at that. Wouldn't it be great to have an Oilers and Senators playoff? I was going to wear my uh, Oilers uh, jersey today. I see Steve's got his on. Anybody else got a jersey on here today? Good for you, Steve. You're very brave. Uh, I thought I'd wear mine on the very last game of the Stanley Cup playoffs. That's pretty optimistic, eh? But Edmonton does have a fever, doesn't it? Really, we have a fever these days, and uh, it's exciting. Well, we're in an invigorating series of messages these days under the caption, Against All Odds. It's, it's commonplace for all of us to come up against life. And life is hard, and life is challenging, and life is demanding. But, but, but that's not the whole story. 
So we're in Daniel 3 this morning, and it's time to kind of dust the pa- uh, the, uh, off this passage of Scripture and just see what God might say to us today through his word. And I just remind us this morning, what a privilege to have the word. It's your greatest treasure. It's your greatest treasure, day in and day out. Uh, life comes from the word of God settling deep into our hearts. I've been working my way through the minor prophets, just as an aside. Some of those books are hard slugging, but in my quiet time, I've just been wanting to review the minor prophets. And, and then uh, it, it's, it's so hard slugging for a while, and then you get a window of light, and you see the heart of God. And this week, out of the book of Haggai, came the word sparked. Sparked. I would have never imagined that word to be in Haggai. Uh, but through Haggai, through the word of God, something was sparked in the lives of leaders and the people of Israel. And when they heard that word, there was a sparking, there was a connection. God did something. He did a mighty transformation. And that's our prayer as we open his word from day to day, that he would spark our hearts and that he would spark our hearts even today. Daniel chapter 3, we just heard some of the lengthy chapter read. It is a very long passage. It's filled with details. And of course, it follows on the heels of this vivid prophecy in Daniel chapter 2, where King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of this enormous statue. And the king nearly took the head off of every wise man in the court until Daniel, this young man... 17-year-old, I remind us that he was very young, until Daniel stepped into the equation and he asked for a little time. Always a good thing to ask for a little time when you're under severe pressure and you have to make a decision to have some time to process it. And you know what it made it crazy, crazy, crazy was the fact that the king wanted the astrologers and the wise men of his court to not only interpret the dream, but actually to come up with the original dream. He said, you have to tell me what I've dreamt. Now, who in the world can do that? None of us can do that, the wise men said, and uh, behind closed doors saying, this guy is loony. Tell us the dream, and we'll come up with the interpretation But to actually come up with a dream, well, they said to themselves, only the gods can do something like that. But Daniel phrased it another way. He said, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Daniel tells him what he has dreamed. And Daniel had a little caveat. This is so good. It is not because I am wiser than anyone else that I know the secret of your dream, but because God wants you to understand what was in your heart. God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to see the future. He wanted him to catch perspective of his role in the world. And wouldn't it be awesome if Nebuchadnezzar became a true follower of God through all of this? So lots of grace here, lots of grace here for Nebuchadnezzar to get the drift of what God is doing. He's going to do some things in in Nebuchadnezzar's life, and he's giving him all kinds of clues. Hey, God may be giving you some clues these days as to where he wants you. 
If you just take a little time and reflect, you might see it more clearly. God always has the best for you. He loves us. And if we bow humbly before him, he will open up the doors of his blessing. He will open up the doors of his blessing. What does his blessing look like? Well, the blessing is his presence, as we sung this morning. The blessing is his presence. The blessing is living in the presence. The blessing is wholeness and fulfillment and joy and purpose in the journey that he gives you. And then all the multitude of extras that he, that he brings along the way. Because he'll give you all kinds of extras that will just spark your life and say, Oh, wow, God is with me. God is here. God is in this. What was the vision? It was a huge shining statue of a man. The head was gold. The chest and arms were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron and its feet were a combination of iron and, and baked clay. And they represent the, the kingdoms of the world. And they were still ahead of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. He was on the, uh, the forefront. He was looking ahead to all of this. For us, we're looking on the other side. We're looking back to the kingdoms that have come and gone. And Daniel goes on and he says, A rock was cut out of the mountain, not by human hands, and it struck the feet of iron and clay, smashing them to bits. And so the whole statue was crushed into very small pieces. And then listen, the wind came along and blew all the pieces away. So the rock hits the statue. The, the statue is crushed into many small pieces. And then the wind comes and... And just like that, all the small pieces are blown away. Human kingdoms will come and go. They will not last. But the kingdom of God... The rock will endure. It was a picture of the kingdoms rising and falling. And Daniel was telling Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom is right at the top. You're the gold. You are the most powerful. <sighs> but you're going to fall. And in fear, your kingdom will come in and defeat Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And the prophecy is a description of how all the world powers through the years would come and go. And in the end, the kingdom of God alone will prevail. Jesus Christ will prevail. Just simplify it right down to that, that Jesus Christ in the end will prevail. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar is so overcome with this word from God because he knows it's from God. He knows that no one could just come up with this, that, that that is exactly the dream that he had. He says, your God is the greatest of all gods. Your God is Lord over all kings. And then King Nebuchadnezzar promotes Daniel, and he promotes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because he knew that it was, it was right. He knew that this was from God. Now, it's hard to figure us humans out. You would think that we would learn more quickly than we do. Uh, it seems unbelievable that you, when you turn to the very first verse of Daniel chapter 3, that you would now find King Nebuchadnezzar constructing an image of what? Of gold. Of gold. I mean, it's just so contradictory to what he has just acknowledged. Your God is the greatest now, it's true that there might be a time lag between chapter 2 and chapter 3. We're not sure. 
But it doesn't take long for Nebuchadnezzar to ignore all that has been said to him, and he continues on in his merry way, in his own selfish way, in his own entitled way. He has not been transformed. He said the right words. He was shaken at the prophecy. It scared him. But he was not transformed. But he was not transformed. Is it true in our lives? We've heard, and we've heard it, and we've heard it, and we've heard it, and we've heard it, and we've said the right words, and we've done the right things, and we've, quote, walked the right pathway. But really, there is no change. Friends, God gives us some experiences that he desires that we learn from. How easy to drift, how easy to say, well, that was yesterday, that's in the past, I'm going to live my life today, I have my needs, I have to take care of myself. But God has already spoken to some of those issues in our lives. God has already spoken and we know it. You see, when the heat is off, where will we turn? And sometimes we just go right back to our old ways. Now, Nebuchadnezzar continued to be consumed with himself. He was not transformed from himself. He made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, that's amazing. I know there's engineers out there. Quite a few of you are in that field. What an, what, a, what an engineering feat this must have been. 90 feet high. This is 600 B.C. None of our modern ways of doing things, but they figured it out. Remember Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, you are that head of gold as he described this great statue to the king. Well, what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He builds an image that is all gold from top to bottom. I wonder if he was thinking, hey, that, my kingdom is not just the head, not just partly gold. It's all gold. It's the best. One man did a rough estimation of the value of this gold image using the current price of uh, gold and estimating the weight of the image. He came up with a grand total of $2,315,000,000. His comment was this. Not only does this give an idea of the fantastic wealth of Nebuchadnezzar's empire, but it reveals the extent of his egomania. A man so great, the most powerful in all the world, but in his heart, in his character, in what is really important, he doesn't have inside what's important to keep him balanced on the outside. He cannot stay on track because he's not on track internally, his character. The image was erected in the plain of Dura. That would be somewhere in what today is called Iraq. Archaeologists have actually found what they believe to be the base or the foundation for this image. It is in a place called Dura, and it's six miles south of ancient Babylon. It's amazing. I don't know, but I think that the first sign of Nebuchadnezzar's insanity are beginning to show themselves in the construction of this image. He becomes obsessed with exalting himself, even to the point of trying to deify himself. 
He may have well been reacting to the dream that no one will take my kingdom from me. That my kingdom will last forever. See, it's all gold. There's nothing better. Oh, what a surprise is coming, Mr. King. We have what we have by the grace of God. We have what we have by the grace of God. If you've been given just a little, or you have been given a whole lot, it's all God's. If we try to be something that we're not, if we try to hold on to what preserves our ego, it will not satisfy. It will never be enough. There will never be enough applause. There will be, never be enough praise. There will always be a restlessness because God designed us differently, that our rest would always be in him. But if we steward what God has given us, and if we live with a mindset that every blessing, every blessing is a gift from God, we experience a wonderful peace. We don't have to worry about it. We don't have to grab it. We don't have to possess it. We don't have to go through all kinds of contortions. We just hang on loosely because it all belongs to God. And when we start to grab and seize and say, I, I, I'm going to get that guy because he's pulling in on my empire. No. Then you lose it. He called all the brass together. He called the leadership of the country. He called the who's who of Babylon, verse 2, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates. He called all these guys to come to the dedication of this new image, shining in the sun out in the desert, the perfect place for everyone to see this amazing statue, probably in the valley, so that it could be well seen from all the different viewpoints. And they had a little ceremony. And they had a band. What a band. Lights and everything. I don't know where they got those lights. They had horns and flutes and harps and a variety of instruments. And the signal was, when the music starts, then they were to fall down and worship the image. Well, it didn't take much guesswork to know what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. Worship the statue, which was really, really, he was saying, worship me. There wasn't a lot of choice either, because verse 6 is pretty clear. You either bow or burn. The choice is yours. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now, there could have been a thousand leaders gathered on the plains of Dura that day. You can just see it. The orchestra strikes up a tune. Everybody falls flat on the ground. And if anybody's looking, you'll see three young men still standing on their feet. They didn't hit the deck at the given signal. Now, wouldn't that have taken some courage? Everyone flat on their face and three guys still standing and saying, no, we won't bow. Not everybody bowed. It seems strange to me that three guys were spotted not bowing. I mean, how did the astrologers know this? Were they peeking? Did they have their eyes open? They were supposed to be down on the ground. They reported the three Jewish boys to the king. And look at the defamatory words. They paid no attention to you, your majesty. They refused to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you've set up. Now there's a little history to that comment. 
like these guys, these are fellow colleagues in the king's court, and they're jealous. They're jealous of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they've watched them being promoted, and, and they are not happy with that. Little jealousy raising its ugly head. You know, jealousy is a strange thing. It's amazing the homicides that come out of a deep jealousy of someone else. The homicides. It has been called the jaundice of the soul. John Chrysostom, the great biblical expositor of early Antioch, said, As a moth gnaws a garment, so does envy consume a man. Well, as expected, these three young men are called on the carpet by King Nebuchadnezzar. He was furious. I mean, he was, he was boiling. Verse 14, he says, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image I have set up? Is that true? And he doesn't even give them time to answer. He just says, I'm going to start the music again. Now, maybe you didn't hear the music well, my friends. Maybe your ears were plugged. Maybe you didn't hear, but you listen. Because when the music starts, you better bow, or else this will be your funeral music. If you don't drop to the knee, your knees and worship, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. That's got to be intimidating to stand before the most powerful ruler on the face of the earth and say anything and give a rebuttal. Verse 16 is startling. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Now is that for an opening line? You know, as Christians, we often think we owe the world a defense for our position. We often feel very threatened by the fact that we can feel outnumbered. These young men said, we don't owe you an answer in defense at all. This is the basis of our conviction. We simply refuse to worship an image, that image. It's an idol. We don't worship idols. And you know, those who believe the saying that everybody has their price, everybody can be bought, should consider well the response of these men in this crisis when their lives are at stake. They could not be bought for any price. I mean, it's extraordinary. These three Jewish men were so confident in their relationship with God. Look at their faith, verse 17. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. God will take care of us. I mean, we've talked to him about this. And and he'll save us from the fire. We know he's going to do that. Oh, but then look at the next statement. Did you know this verse was in the Bible? Here's the test for having a real grasp of the sovereignty of God. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you've set up. Now that's powerful. That's faith in a sovereign God. No matter what happens, regardless of whether we live or whether we die, God may not deliver us from the furnace of fire. That's up to him. But we will not bow our knees to the golden image that you have built. Can I just take a couple of minutes here to share a brief word about faith and sovereignty?
because we all have to wrestle with this. Uh, and, and there is a range of thought in the evangelical world. Situations where people say, oh, you know, if I only had enough faith, I'd be able to control what's going to happen. A healing, a job, you know, I, it's all on me and, and, and a change in relationship or whatever. It might, if, I just, if, if I just could muster enough faith, a young mom with a van load of kids had to go to the grocery store for just a couple of items. So she's running all of her, her errands in it, and she had to drop in at the grocery store and just pick up a couple of things. But it means taking five kids out of the car, unstrapping them, restrapping them, all of that. And she thought, you know, if she could only leave the kids in the van and get the van real close to the store, she could keep checking on them through the window of the store. And then she could zip out in and get those few things, just pick them up, just a few minutes, and never lose sight of the kids. So she prayed, Lord, give me a parking place right by the door. I believe you can do that. I know you'll do that for me. I need that, Lord, from you. And so she's praying. She's just trying to build her faith by saying, I believe. I believe, I believe Lord, you can do that. I believe you can do that. There's no parking space to be found. She circles and circles and circles. There's no parking spot to be found. And finally, she had to park a long ways away. And that mom got very hard on herself and thought, what in the world is wrong with me? I prayed with all the faith I could possibly muster, but God did not answer. There must be something wrong with me. There must be something wrong with my faith. Simple little story. We've got all kinds of them. What happened? It's the old trap of saying it is the quantity of faith that changes the situation. If I only have more faith, more faith, there'll be a parking space. My faith would compel me that, to, that God would get me a parking space. Uh, she knew that God was adequate, so she assumed that her faith was at fault. There's a lesson here. Faith is not trusting in how much confidence we have about things that we would like to have happen. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego confessed that they didn't know what would happen. They were not sure if they would be thrown into the fiery furnace and if that was their future. They weren't sure if they would live or they would die. Yet the Bible hails them as great men of faith. These three men, faithful men, understood that their, their faith locks on to God, not on themselves. We pray to him for what we think is right, but we trust him to do what is ultimately best. We pray to him for what we think is right, but we trust him to do what is ultimately best. Of course, we pray for healing. And it's awesome to see God at work when he does healing in, in the bodies of people and our family and our friends. Love it. That's our heart. That's our desire that our loved ones be healed. We think that's right. We would, we would trust God that that's right. But we always trust God to do what is ultimately best. I've stood beside the bedside of people dying of cancer and they and their family are beating themselves up 
trying hard to possess all the faith they can, claiming all the verses that they possibly can, so that their loved one would live. And what disappointment when the loved one dies? What disappointment? Was the disappointment in God? God, did you fail us? Do I feel that way? Perhaps. Was the disappointment in myself for being an inferior Christian? I must not have had enough faith. I must not be good enough. I must not be valued of God. And on and on down that rabbit trail. Oh, what a trap that is. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said that even if God did not deliver them from death, they would serve him. They were saying, I trust my God, whatever comes. Sovereignty and faith. You see, their faith was in God, not in the quantity of their own faith. This does not mean that I always know what will come. Uh, but my faith is what God knows is best, not what I think is best. My faith is in what my God knows is best. We should remember, for example, the difficulties of Paul, the apostle. Certainly a man of great faith. He took the gospel to the Gentiles. He wrote a large portion of the New Testament. He was involved in many healings. Wow, God, God worked through Paul in such amazing ways. Many healings and the touch of God on many lives. Yet the Bible records at least four examples of sickness or disasters in his life that God did not prevent. The one that comes to mind most of all is the story of the thorn in the flesh. But do you remember the Galatians 4.13 story? Surely, he, Paul says, you remember that I was sick when I first brought you the good news? But even though my condition tempted you to reject me, you did not despise me or turn me away? God... Paul did not respond to his physical needs and his body, which was not well, by doubting his faith, by doubting the reality of God, by thinking somehow that God was not for him. He knew that faith does not remove all hardship and suffering from life. He believed that God knew what was best for him and the ministry that he was involved in. Do we say, Paul, if you just had a little bit more faith, Life wouldn't have been so hard for you. Of course not. We know that Paul had a deep faith that carried him through the hardest of times. So here's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego tell us or teach us. Number one, to acknowledge our needs without stipulating how God will respond. Just to acknowledge our needs without stipulating how God must respond. To humbly acknowledge the ability of God either to meet our needs in ways that we desire or in a way that he knows is better. And thirdly, to commit ourselves to uncompromising obedience, whatever comes. Well, back to our story in, in Daniel 3. Talk about having a fit. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar had one. He lost it. He really lost it. He was furious. He ordered the furnaces heated seven times hotter than usual. Seven times hotter than usual. Now, he must have been sick because if he really wanted to torture them and have them linger in great pain and agony, I would think he'd cool the furnaces down and just prolong the agony. But he was mad and he heated up the furnace seven times more than usual. He gave orders for an elite crew of his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Did they think they would try to run away? 
He got some of the strongest soldiers to tie them up. The furnaces were so hot that the flames of fire killed the soldiers who were in process of throwing these three men into the raging incinerator. And these next verses are the best part of the, of the chapter. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are heaved into the fire. They're firmly tied, and they fell into the blazing furnace. And in the next immediate scene, King Nebuchadnezzar, who must have been sitting close by watching this punishment takes, take place, he jumps to his feet and he says, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? He's not good at math either. I thought we threw three men in. What's going on here? I see four men in there. They are unbound. They seem to be okay. And the fourth one looks like a son of the gods. Now Nebuchadnezzar had no concept of the son of God. He had little concept of the God of heaven. This was a polytheistic culture. So he sees something that he identifies as perhaps related to the gods. It may well have been an angel that God sent to protect these three men. An angel that was permitted to be visible at that moment. The king called for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to come out of the fire. And they came out. And there is no more reference to the fourth person in the fire. I don't want to dwell on this, but I, I think it's just a perfect opportunity to say, I really believe in angels. You know, I, I think if our eyes permitted us to see their ministry, because they, it's in the invisible, but I think if our eyes were permitted to see their ministry, I think we'd all be astounded. I think we would. I believe when we're in great need, God sends his angels to surround us and to stand guard over our, over our lives. It's so wonderful to know that we are protected and ministered to by angels. Talk about invisible minister. I was in, I was in Zechariah this morning, just reading a little bit, and, and, and I thought, this is so cool. It, it talked about the angels patrolling the earth, that the angels go back and forth, and they were patrolling the earth, and they were looking for the, the concerns of humanity, and they reported that there's peace in the land. It's an angel. Everyone crowded around when these three men came out of the fire. It was inspection time. The officials, the governors, the royal advisors, they were all peering over one another, trying to get a look at these three guys. Wow, they're out, they're alive. Do you know what they observed? Number one, their bodies weren't burned. Secondly, all of their hair was still there, not even singed. And thirdly, they still had their clothes on their back. And their clothes weren't scorched. And fourthly, I love this one the best, they didn't even smell of smoke. Isn't that cool? Down to the smallest detail. They didn't even smell like smoke. Isn't God amazing? That's only God. God was demonstrating himself so clearly in their midst. And now as you read the concluding verses of the chapter, King Nebuchadnezzar has another change of heart. I don't get so excited this time about his change of heart. I'm sorry, I'm a little skeptical. But here it is. Sounds pretty good. But I'm not sure. Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted him. 
They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own. So, praise to God. And then he says, don't speak against the God of these young men. And he promoted them. Well, he certainly had the right words. But I'm not sure about the transformation of his heart. Lord, not just words, but transformation. What do we do with Daniel chapter 3 this week? As we conclude, uh, some of you are concluding studies University coming to a conclusion. Taylor graduation this afternoon. Um, our children's ministry worker at uh, Southwest is uh, Celine. She graduates today. Adam Beyer graduated yesterday uh, from Prairie, coming on staff here shortly. How do we how do we relate, relate this to? our family and our friends and the marketplace. Can I just give you four things? It'll be very brief. Number one, life is a pressure cooker. And you will face many compromising situations. And you'll be asked to set aside what you think is right in order to conform with the crowd to the crowd or the dictates of someone who is powerful in their influence. And when they speak, it's pretty powerful. That pressure is enormous. Only the life of Christ in you can resource you. Secondly, God is sovereign, regardless of how he responds to your situation. The situation is not out of control, even if the answer doesn't come the way you anticipate it to come because he's the sovereign God. Thirdly, suffering is one of the great building blocks to spiritual maturity. It's easy to construct a ministry around trying to avoid suffering. It just doesn't seem to be the way it works. And fourthly, when God takes us through the fire, there won't even be a smell of smoke. Sometimes you can smell the smoke. The struggle hasn't really purified us. It's only made us grumble more. It only has made us be more critical, more harsh. There's smoke all over us. But what a joy to be in touch with people who have suffered so much. And yet when you talk to them, you sense a beautiful spirit of forgiveness and love. When we surrender to God in the fire, there won't even be a trace of smoke on our clothes. Let's stand together. Our Father, there's none like you we're so glad we serve you. We're so glad we know you. What a good father you are. Thank you for superintending the events of history. All through these kingdoms, when they came and then they disappeared, you were through, in there through all of them. 
Thank you for people who you have put in the Bible to teach us. People like Daniel and his three friends. Lord, in the midst of a broken world, when pushed up against a wall, help us to have confidence and faith in you. And not in us. Day by day, give us a deep sense that you're in charge every single detail of our lives. Sometimes when our lives seem so chaotic, we, we really wonder, are you there, Lord? Are you really in control? And then one day we begin to see it, that you truly were. You know us all by name. You know our pain and our joy. And as we whisper our pain to you today, give us the ability to hand all of life over to you. And not hold on to it, but to surrender it to one who loves us more than we can possibly imagine. We pray in the strong name of Jesus.